0: Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, please. We're going to go to the Gospel of Mark. Welcome those who are visiting with us. Glad you joined us today. And those who are joining on live stream, we welcome you as part of our family. We're going to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be picking it up at chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, and then verse 31. Heaven, I know it's in front of us, but you have your devices, your Bibles. I always encourage you to bring your Bibles on Sunday. Sometimes it's just valuable just to mark places in the Bible. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There were some people brought to him, a man who was deaf and could hardly speak. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, "Apaphatha," which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Let's just pray before we share it through the word. Lord, we do ask that as your word is a lamp to our feet, you would show us how to step around this. We pray your word would be a light to our path, that we know where it's going. Lord, I pray that also your word would uh, enlighten our hearts, search our hearts with your word, that there be a cleansing take place in our hearts and lives today. According to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This passage of Scripture, you may may not be familiar with this. And I've often gotten lost in a part of the Scripture because I find Jesus' methods are always unique. Uh, I mean, sticking his fingers in his ears, okay, I get that. The whole spit thing, right? The whole spit thing. How do you think that would go in, in COVID days? I don't want to focus on that, though. Because there's, a part, there's another part that often we slip through, and, and we're going to focus on that. But let me just back it up a little bit. Here's what's happening. Jesus is presented here with a man who is deaf. He can't hear. And he has a speech impediment. He can talk, but he can't talk well. Jesus refusing to exploit the situation, to make a spectacle of the situation. People love spectacles. He took the man aside, spat, touched the man's tongues, his ears pronounced, be open. But before Jesus healed him, Jesus did something very unusual. Did you pick that up in the text? Some of you did. Verse 34, he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh. So my message is around this one point. Why does God sigh? He sighed. There's always something in a sigh. Okay, come on, let's go ahead and get it out of us. Everybody here, give me your best sigh. <laughs> okay, that was kind of mournful. Okay, a sigh. I guess sighs can be. Now, it says here, I'm going to read it 34 He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, he, whatever you just did, he sighed before he performed the miracle. Jesus sighed. I might have expected him to do something a little bit more, maybe spectacular, maybe a quick clap. That's a good thing before a miracle, isn't it? You know, snap your hand, clap your hand, snap your finger. Maybe a a, a quick word, a prayer. Didn't say any of that. It says Jesus sighed. Went to the dictionary. Sigh, an act, when involuntary in expressing, an emotion, a feeling. It's a yearning, a grieving, a mourning. Now, admittedly, I hadn't really thought about God sighing. Hadn't really thought about God sighing. Uh, I'd thought of God as one who commands. God of one who speaks, declares, decrees, weeps. But what of this sighing thing? What do you make of it when God sighs? What do you make of when God sighs? Now, personally, I've caught myself sighing a number of times. None less than yesterday. Lori and I were having coffee together, and next thing she said, why did you sigh? And I, I what? She said, you just sighed. And I hadn't caught, I didn't realize I'd sighed. Maybe it was a great cup of coffee. But she, caught me. she caught me sighing. So I've done some inventory about my sighing, and I've found a few things about me sighing. Uh, there was a situation. Somebody had, uh, was coming, making their way to our house. I could see through the window. It was a solicitor coming, and, and I caught myself sighing. What was that? Maybe it was a sigh demonstrating a bit of an aggravation, an inconvenience maybe about to happen, an interruption in my life. The alarm clock goes off in the morning. i got to get up. I've caught myself sighing. Why am I sighing? I don't want to get up. I'm tired. I'm weary. I've caught myself sighing when the alarm clock goes off. I caught myself sighing one day. I was sitting down to later in the day with a book in hand to do some reading. And I sighed as I was sitting down. And I caught myself sighing. See, I had been neglecting some reading and I was... Finally feeling I was getting a sense of maybe to catch up on some reading. And it was maybe a sigh of of maybe frustration. I hadn't gotten around to it. Uh, There's times I've caught myself sighing when I'm facing and about to face a tough conversation. And a sigh comes out as I anticipate that conversation. Um, It comes out of maybe hurt. I have been heard to sigh on so many other occasions. I've just not done inventory of them. So, just in the ones I've mentioned, did you catch some of these? Aggravated sigh, a wearisome sigh, a frustrated sigh, a hurt sigh. Uh, I think sighing happens anywhere between tears and anger. Sighing. So here we have the text again. You have the text where it says, and Jesus sighed. God sighed at the point of this miracle. Romans chapter eight verse twenty-two. The apostle Paul tells that creation sighs, all creation sighs, creation sighs because of the pain of sin. So think about it. creation: the trees, the plants, the animals, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. Creation sighs because of sin's pain. What's sin's pain? The repercussions. The ache of coming out of sin in this world. He says all creation sighs. There's another sigh. Let's go over uh, to Mark chapter 8. We have another sighing of Jesus. This is the second time I found it. Mark chapter 8, just slip over one chapter. So in Mark 7, Jesus, there was some sense that when Jesus looked into the man who was disabled, the man who had been struck Deaf and who had a speech impediment, and Jesus sighed. There was something about where Jesus looked into Satan's works, and he sighed. The work of Satan, what sin does. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked for a sign from heaven. Here it is, verse 12. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. God sighed again. The first sigh seemed to be more depictive of the repercussions of sin as he looked into the eyes of this man who had been struck deaf and with a speech impediment. Now Jesus sighs because he's in the corner with a guy trying to trick him, a guy trying to trap him at his words, somebody attempting to manipulate Jesus. And God sighs again. God sighs. I want to suggest that sin and sin's effects cause our Savior to sigh. Three things I want to share. Coming out of the principle, why does God sigh? First of all, Jesus sighs over little foxes that spoil the vine. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15, says, Catch for us the foxes. The little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. The picture here is that foxes, I mean foxes are so cute, they're so potentially cuddly. I mean they got big fluffy tails, cute little eyes and such petite little noses and alert little ears. I mean they're just, foxes are cute little animals. I've seen them in the wild. We lived in a place where we used to have a fox frequent our Area walk by every once in a while, and they're so cute to look at. He says here, though, the little foxes that spoil the vine. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vine. The foxes aren't very big. They're not like a wolf. They're not like a big coyote. They're tiny. They're petite. They're small. They almost look, you can mistake it for a big cat sometimes. They're petite little things. And he says, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. Our vineyards that are in bloom. You have the picture here. The vineyards that have been worked hard on. They have been nurtured. They have been groomed. They've been, there's been planting. There has been the pruning. There has been the preparing. The receiving of the, the, the fruit from the vineyard. The vineyard's purpose is to produce fruit. But beware because there's a fox. If it, if it destroys the vine. If the fox comes in. Acute as it is. If the fox comes in and, and nips away at the vine. It will destroy all the fruit. The vineyard. The vine. The grapes are no good. Beware, catch the foxes. Charles Spurgeon, the great evangelist pastor, said, If thou wouldst live with Christ, and walk with Christ, and see Christ, and have fellowship with Christ, take heed of the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. The believers' vines, our lives, tender, tender grapes. Beware. Beware of anything. Beware of anything that gets in there. Watch for it. Maybe this morning we can catch ourselves some little foxes. Maybe this morning we can catch ourselves some little things that are trying to nip away at your vineyard, that are nipping away at your fruit, causing it not to produce. The little things that maybe have been overlooked or have been passed by. The little things. Maybe catch yourself some foxes that are spoiling the growth in your life. Little foxes come in all shapes and sizes and often go unnoticed. Be on guard for those little things. Those little things that might be running loose in your life. I believe Jesus sighs because in the story of that man, the little foxes. The nip away on the fruit of people's lives. He sighed. He sighed. You know, if we don't watch it, those little foxes, they'll come in and nipping away, they'll divide your heart. What was meant for a heart that was single-hearted, passionate, loving God, pursuing His plans, single in devotion, after a while your heart starts to get divided. The little fox causes you to now pursue other things. And if you don't challenge that, Your heart will become dull. A dull heart is where your eyes are blurred spiritually. You no longer can see things in the spiritual realm clearly anymore. When you read the scriptures, you're not getting it. When songs are sang, you tune to a secular station. You no longer have the song of the Lord in your heart. You no longer desire to fellowship with his body. There's a dulling of the sensitivities of the things of the spirit. Beware of the fox because it will start with the division, division of your heart that will dullen your sensitivity to the things and the voice and the promptings of his spirit that will dominate your heart. It takes over. And it eventually becomes deadly, destructive, and you've got one thing to do. You've got to drive it out. You have to drive it out. Foxes should not be allowed to coexist when they destroy the fruit. These little foxes gnaw the vines of your effectiveness. The book of Hebrew calls us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Throw it all off. And so Jesus sighs over the little foxes that spoil the vine. He sees the damage as he looked into that man's eyes that day. The damage of the little foxes that spoil the vine. The little things of sin. The little things left unattended. Beware. I think there's a second thing I want to draw out of this. I believe Jesus sighs when his church fails to notice. How much of our culture should we embrace in order to redeem it? I face that question almost every day. How much of my culture do I embrace in order to redeem it? How much do I become a part of in order to redeem from? Big challenge, isn't it? I don't know. Do you fight that one too? I think we all do as Christians. And there are some aspects of our culture that we should embrace, but there is much that we must stand against. How much of my culture do I embrace in order to redeem it? Have I embraced too much? Have my has my effectiveness now been so diluted I have no more influence of Christ on this culture and us? Jesus' sighs when his church fails to notice. I have this comment. I'm putting it up here for you. Here it is. Our ability to discern what we can and cannot embrace is critical to the continuation of our witness as a church. We've got to figure that one out. Our ability to discern what we can and cannot. I can't cross that line. There's lines here I can't go across. It's critical to the continuation or else you lose your voice for Jesus. It's gone. Jesus watched people submit to cultures in his day. When he faced in Mark chapter 8, these priests and religious leaders, the people who were the believers. He saw that the culture was enticing, the temptations were enticing. And it was enticing them to justify their deeds in the name of compassion, love, and cultural relevance. They had become a part of and no longer stood out against anymore. If we were to take a field trip to the Middle East and visit the ancient sites of the seven churches of Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3, you know in Revelation 2, chapter 3, it talks of the seven churches, and the churches are spoken over as the seven cities, the churches of the seven cities. Now if we were to visit that, you would come to one of the ancient sites, it's no longer there, it was a city by the name of Sardis. You can find the revelation in Revelation 3, 1 and 2. Let's read it. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Here it is. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. What concerned Jesus in this revelation that he gave to John? What concerned Jesus about this church was that this group of people, this church, this body of believers in the city of Sardis, here's the city of Sardis, this church in the city of Sardis failed to notice. They failed to notice things. This church had a reputation for being alive. They had a reputation in the early days. They were a church that was a church of vitality and a church that made a difference in their town. But now, but now they were dead because the people had submitted to their surrounding culture. They had adopted and they conformed. They no longer saw the word uh, of sin and the works of the enemy as an enemy. They saw it as something that if they were a part of, they would be able to be effective to the people around them. Thankfully, not everyone succumbed to the temptation. Jesus would go on to say in verse 4, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. There's a few people who have not dirtied their clothes. They walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. Here you have a picture of Jesus sighing, when the pressure to compromise and redefine the gospel by finding a middle ground might well-proved to undermine everything you've ever stood for. Beware of failing to notice, A failing to notice. You know, something about Sardis, if you were to visit that ancient site today, here's what you would notice in the city of Sardis. The ancient site where the churches were, you would discover where the churches stood, right beside them is where the sexual temples, the pagan temples were. Somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, The people had been vital in sharing their faith and in in redeeming those from the temples whose lives needed Christ. But somewhere along the way, they were comfortable in just coexisting alongside and really not making much difference too. Here's the challenge, and we've said it in our church many a time. How does a church exist in the community not know you're there? If that happens, we we are the church of Sardis. The church that exists but has conformed To the community around it. Jesus sighs when his children fail to notice the signs around them. There's a third one I want to bring out and that's Jesus sighs when we redefine the gospel. Uh, After Jesus' resurrection, he urged Mark chapter 16 verse 15. He said, he told all his followers, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Preach the gospel. Declare, proclaim the good news. Now, part of that is helping the poor. We experienced that this past week. Somebody coming into our church who was in need of help. The gospel is a part of helping the poor. The gospel is a part of helping the needy. It is. It's a part of the gospel. Although helping the poor and the needy is part of the good news proclamation. Here it is. Beware that you don't replace it from personal repentance. It's not just about handing something out. It's not just about giving something. Repentance is at the core of the gospel. Salvation in Jesus Christ is the thrust of what it's about. In other words, replacing salvation with social justice. Watch church history. Some of you maybe are history buffs. If you study church history and the history of churches, you will see a migration of where there was a strong appeal to the gospel message of repentance. Come out, follow Jesus. It's not that you were not friends, fellowshipping with, caring but the salvation called a taking up, your, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. And following him. Salvation in Christ, in Christ alone. But after a while, because there's such need around, the focus on such need begins to replace the need for salvation. The need for a regenerated heart. A life that is changed by the power of God. And so we're focused on doing good works. They are important. They are a part of it. But not at the expense of, of the good news of salvation it can be easy and some of the I challenge that sometimes in prayers when I'm in prayer groups and we begin to pray petition for the needs we go through a list of a number of needs but often my heart screams inside pray for the spiritual conditions too see the physical conditions are so Jesus said you will always have the sick with you it wasn't an excuse but his call was There is a higher calling. I remember the first time I heard there's a thing called the second death. I don't mean reincarnation and you die twice. The first death is when you die from this body. The first death. But the second death is if you are not a child of God. If you have not accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. The second death is when you've died from His presence forever. We will all face the death of this body. That's not our enemy. It's not our enemy. It's a sting, the Bible says. It's a sting. But it's not your enemy. The enemy is your second death. It's the death that will separate you from God for eternity. And so here, Jesus, you get the impression here, Jesus sighs when we redefine the gospel into a social gospel only. We're doing good works, but we are no longer presenting the salvation message. Jesus saves. You need the Savior. And when we back away from that, the heart of God is broken. For it breaks the Great Commission. George Barna, a researcher, recently did a poll. Let me share the poll with you. This poll didn't surprise me, but it kind of just puts in definition something here. He had a poll. George Barna had polled believers in the church, those 40 years of age and under. And out of the poll, here were some of the results 50% of 40 and under agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with others of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share your faith. So what they're saying here is disagreeing that there is one way to God and that you should share your faith in hopes that they come to your faith. 50% struggle with that. You shouldn't impose your faith on someone. Now the issue of that now becomes a pluralistic gospel. Whatever you believe is good for you. If it's good for you, it's good for me. But it stands in stark contrast to salvation. There is salvation in one and one only. Jesus says, I am the way, not one of the ways. There is salvation in no other. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And when we begin to negotiate that, we negotiate that, then our own lives lose witness. Beware of that, of redefining the gospel. Barna says that uh, there's a struggle there. Um, Let me just continue with what Barna was saying. He says, they somewhat agree that if someone disagrees with you, they're judging you. And the most often quoted scripture, according to George Barna Pohl, 40 and under, was Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. And continuing on, to believe that Christ is the only way to the father is regarded as bigotry belief in hell is viewed as a regression to medieval notions of primitive and cruel judgmentalism i never receive more hassle as a pastor than when i bring in my good friend tom mcintyre from heaven's gates and hell's flames and we do a production of heaven's gates and hell's flames i get my greatest criticisms how dare we talk so much about hell And yet in the church, I ask, how often do you hear me talk about hell? (laughs) Hell is mentioned more than twice as often as heaven is mentioned in scripture. And the reason is, is there's something to be said about you don't want to go there. Right? You don't want to go there. But there is a notion to minimize hell. So therefore, be saved because it's a better life. Be saved. You will find joy in life. Be saved, you will live better. Blessings will be yours. It's like somehow we tack salvation onto an already busy lifestyle. But that's not the gospel, actually. The gospel actually has come out from among them. He calls us out into salvation. And then and only then, is there enough potency to be able to present Jesus to another? Oh yes, there are offensive Christians. Oh my goodness. We don't need more. Oh, yes, there are arrogant and people who speak and live arrogantly and hurt the cause of Christ, yes. But I'm really not convinced that that's the sharing of the gospel. The sharing of the gospel, one who has been changed by what Jesus is doing, is not one who arrogantly, but one with a broken heart, just begins to share something of the faith. Now, now, you have something to say. If we lose our passion for making the good news known, If we abandon the biblical teaching about heaven and hell and Christ is the only way. If we work to make life better in this world and ignore the reality of a life to come. Then we sacrifice the eternal on the altar of temporal. We sacrifice eternity for living better right now. Jesus sighs. Because there was the Pharisee depicting a person who was conforming to the people around. The society around them. He sighed, he sighed, for the clearness and vitality and the color of the gospel has been mutated without power. The cross was no accident. What Jesus did for us was no small thing. There's a a clip, that story, maybe you heard the story, maybe you've seen the clip. I actually went back, I used the clip a number of years uh, when I traveled on missions and I would use this clip. We would take our own equipment and show it in different churches. Uh, it's really, it's, it's not a clear clip. Some of you may know it. Let me just tell you the story. It's a story of an engineer who operated a drawbridge across a mighty river. With a control panel of levers and switches, the engineer would set into motion a monstrous set of gears that either lifted the bridge for the river traffic to go through or closed the bridge for the train to go through. It was up to him to lift it for the river traffic, close it for the trains that would go through throughout the day. One day he took his young son to work with him. The boy was fascinated with all the equipment, question after question he had for his dad. It was not until the span the span had opened to allow a passage of a ship that dad noticed that the questions had ceased. His son had left the room. He looked out the window of his control cabin and saw his young boy climbing on the teeth of the gears. As he hurried toward the machinery to fetch his son, he heard the whistle of an approaching train. His pulse quickened. If he closed the bridge, there would be no time to retrieve his son. He had a choice to make. Either his son would be killed or a railroad of innocent people be killed. A horrible dilemma would require a horrible decision one way or the other. The engineer knew what he needed to do. He reached for the lever that would seal his boy's death. The clip goes on. The train goes by. How would the passengers who were eating and drinking, some were sleeping. Some even had evil in their hearts. The passing of the trains, the train going by, how would they ever know the sacrifice of that father as the train sped by, not noticing the tears that ran from his face? Some not even aware they were even crossing a bridge, a bridge that ultimately saved their life. It's a powerful story. It's a moving story. Every time I read it, I've seen it, I get a lump in my throat. This story is often used to describe the sacrifice of Christ. It does have parallels. It is true, God could not save us without killing his son. It's true. It is true, the heart of the Father was grieved to no end by doing so. And it is sadly true that many of the saved whizzed by the scenes of disaster, oblivious to how deep a sacrifice it really was. That preserved you and I from certain death. But the story needs one correction. In one area it is not accurate. Acts chapter 2, 22, let me read where it is not accurate. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Here it is. Pick it up, 23. This man, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Did you catch that? He was handed by God, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the Did you catch the difference in the story? You see, the story of the gospel, Jesus was handed to us by God's set purpose and knowledge. The cross was no accident. Jesus' death was not because of a panicked engineer. The cross was not a surprise. The cross was planned. The cross was a calculated choice where the will of God Was to crush his own dear son. It was the plan of Jesus himself. Of Christ himself. For himself. It means that Jesus planned his own sacrifice. It means that Jesus intentionally planted and grew a tree. That would one day be carved out and would be his cross. He planted that tree. It means that Jesus willingly placed iron ore in the heart of the earth for which the nails would be cast that would be thrust into his hands. It means he voluntarily placed the seed of Judas into the womb of his mother who would betray him. Jesus was no accident. The cross was no accident. This is why the ropes that were used to tie Jesus' hands were incidental. They were unnecessary. Had the ropes not been there, had there been no trial, had there been no pilot, had there been no mob, the crucifixion still would have happened. Had Jesus been forced to nail himself to the cross, he was going to the cross. It was not the soldiers he killed him. It was not the screams of an angry mob. It was Jesus' devotion to you and me that took his life. And when you and I blatantly turn away from the sacrifice, so great a sacrifice, God sighs. He sighs. So beware the of the little foxes that are nipping at the vine. The things that you've allowed in that were innocent at first but will destroy your vitality. Beware of where you have stopped realizing. You have turned away. You have stopped impacting the world around you. Beware of the redefinition of the good news into a social gospel and not the presentation of Jesus saves. and You need salvation in Christ. For listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast, remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.